This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. I wonder how many people here today, I can't see you all on one screen, but how many people are here for the first time? All right. We are today, this is, um, this is the last day of our um, Rohatsu Sashin, which is typically a seven-day Sashin that takes place and culminates on the 8th of December, which is Buddha's Enlightenment Day. Although this year, due to uh, the causes and conditions of the universe, we, um, we had a modified schedule which um, ended up working out quite nicely, I think, where we combined our regular morning, afternoon, and evening sits with uh, the Black Mountain Zen Center in Belfast. And uh, my own teacher, Ryushin Paul Haller, uh, was leading that modified retreat. And he called it a study rohatsu, which was kind of interesting that he called it that because, uh, Usually when I think of study sashins, I think of a lot of reading and contemplating and getting really into the, uh, the thinking mind and then putting it all down and sitting and letting go of all thoughts and all conceptual kind of wranglings of the mind. This year, however, we, uh, um, there wasn't really any, I guess with Paul, Paul doesn't maybe think of studying as intellectual. Uh, and through his Dharma talks, which are all available, well, not all because he's got one left this afternoon at 1.30, but they're all available on our website under the Rohatsu page. There's a portal and all the links to his Dharma talks are available there. This is the last day of, technically, it's the last day of our practice period, although we have had our closing ceremony of the practice period. Uh, this is the first time we've done a practice period, otherwise known as ango or peaceful abiding, is the, the translation of ango. Uh, this is the first time that we've had an ango uh, online. And uh, I won't, uh, yeah, I, I'll say that, uh, I had my doubts about how it would go to run a practice period entirely online or almost entirely online. I think we had a couple of retreats where we were able to sit in person in the yard. Uh, some of us were able to come for uh, in-person sitting, but uh, an entirely online practice period pretty much um, was attempted and I think went very, very well. I was uh, quite pleased with it. And one person even told me that they thought it was the best practice period that we have done. <laughs> so thank you to that person, you know who you are. But that was, uh, that was quite a bit of encouragement um, to hear that as well. This practice period we've been, uh, we've embarked on quite a journey, I think. Um, really looking deeply into this question of what is refuge? What does it mean to go for refuge or to take refuge or to walk the path of refuge? And um, of course, this being a Buddhist center, 
what we mean by refuge is taking refuge in the triple treasure or Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. For those of you who did join Paul Haller's Dharma Talks, uh, I had wondered if you noticed that the background of his talks, he's sitting there and in, right behind him, there's this giant painting that I'd never seen before. I assume he's in his house, but there's a big painting and below, like on the, the bottom area of the painting, there are these like little heaps of three, these bundles of three that are the, um, uh, the pictorial description of taking refuge. They're the three treasures of Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And then through the practice period, through our class and through our practice period gatherings, um, we investigated this question of refuge. And I think a lot of wisdom bubbled forth over the course of the practice period. We invited a number of different teachers from our tradition um, to come and speak about this topic. And without any coordination on their part, uh, I think it unfolded quite lovely in this in the way that it unfolded um, from, you know, from uh, the range of conventional descriptions of refuge to ultimate the ultimate description of refuge. Uh, last week we had uh, Kokyo Henkel give his talk and I, I, I couldn't have planned it better in terms of the arc of the Dharma talks and the engagement and um, how it unfolded without any effort on my part. So uh, thank you to the universe <laughs> for allowing things to unfold the way they did up to this moment. And I, um, in this inquiry of refuge, I think the early part of the practice period, we really kind of started off by looking at some of the, the things that we might, we, we ended up calling it, I think, false refuge, as opposed to true refuge, which I think is a really good place to start, right? And I think that's how we, the opening, uh, the opening talks, um, examine this question of what is it that we, what do, what do we actually take refuge in? If we look at the, our behaviors and our actions, not just what we do in our bodies, but in our speech, how we talk, and then even more fundamental, perhaps uh, what happens in our minds. What do we think about? What do we turn to? What are our impulses, right? And asking these questions inherently requires a particular uh, step, which is that of uh, stopping and turning the light inward and looking within. What is this? What is happening now? Over my computer uh, screen in my office here at home, I have a, a little Feroshki, which is this um, cloth, it's a wrapping cloth. And I received this Feroshki, it's used as a, you know, to cover over my screen so that the screen isn't, you know, poking its eyeball into my life all the time, but just, you know, to cover it. And it has a big Enso on it. And right there next to it, it says, what is this? And there's so many ways. Uh, I appreciate this Farish case very much because it, although it seems like a very uh, 
a specific question. What is this? Right? It's a, it's a beautiful question to ask and to inquire as we're sitting, actually, or even when we're not sitting. Just the, the ability to stop, to pause, and to look inward and ask this question. What is this? It works looking outward too. But even more so, I think you can turn that around as we do in Zen. There's lots of turning around and uh, turning things upside down or inside out. It's kind of how we get to the point where we, you know, find what Zen is so famous for, that paradox, right? The paradox of our lives. So turning it around from what is this as a question to what is this? as a statement, what is this? What does that do when that little turning is dropped into our consciousness? Usually I think we have a conception of something and we settle around that conception and then we go about and it's kind of like we enter into a mm, a kind of uh, maybe an autopilot, right? This is biologically, this is necessary for our lives, right? We can't be uh, looking at everything that we encounter and saying, what is this with the same freshness as if it were the first time, right? We, you know, evolutionarily speaking, we, you know, uh, we have the answer, right? We go on autopilot because if we weren't able to do that, we would get trapped in this forever you know, bewilderment, <laughs> if you will. However, the ability to stop and to put down all of our prior conceptions of something, that takes a lot of trust, which is maybe why we have places like the Austin Zen Center or other Zen centers, other maybe even other spiritual centers that are contemplative, right? We have such places to provide a safe space in order to enter into that vulnerable state of not knowing. So over this course of uh, this practice period, there are many different ways that we've investigated uh, refuge. And <clears throat> I wanted to say that um, well, before I say that, maybe I would like to open it up to uh, people who are part of the practice period, or even if you weren't part of the practice period, going back to this question of the arc of taking refuge, of, of our understanding of what it means to take refuge. I wonder if there are any things that stand out to anybody that, that settled or that, uh, or maybe didn't settle and feels a little bit up in the air, a question, a curiosity. This is the meat of our practice, is this open inquiry into what is this? That was an invitation. Marco? Yes, Karen. Um, I think for me, one of the um, kind of things I, I got through our discussions um, was, uh, you know, when I think in an ordinary sense about refuge, um, I sort of think about like withdrawing or, you know, mm -hmm. resting, you know, 
someplace to go to sleep. And it's, it feels like um, taking refuge in Buddha Dharma Sangha is the opposite. You know, it's, it's, it's like um, taking refuge in waking up, but taking refuge in sort of um, it being more vulnerable in a way. Yes. Yeah. So that was something I got. Yeah. Thank you, Karen. Yeah, we, we definitely explored this question. It says refuge, saranam, you know, uh, literally means shelter. So in, in a sense, taking refuge or finding refuge or going for refuge means seeking shelter, seeking protection from something that's dangerous. And yet, as I think everyone who has practiced Zen for even just a little bit of time knows, uh, in some sense, there is no safety. And in some sense, there is nothing but safety. So how do we tangle, untangle this? How do we allow for both? This is a tall ask if you're going to ask somebody who is going to try to tackle this question uh, intellectually. So one thing I wanted to mention was that uh, at the very start of Paul Haller's teachings this week, before it even started, he recommended a, um, an article, <laughs> a New York Times article that's title was, Your Brain is Not for Thinking which uh, is very, it was very short and sweet. It's also available on the, on the portal. And, um, you know, how, how wonderful is that, right? We usually, we want, when we want refuge, we want something that's reliable, right? That's not going to fail us, that we can return to and feel like, okay, now I can, you know, now I can relax, I can rest easy because, you know, and then we have conditions because I feel safe, because I, uh, I feel accepted and um, like I belong because I, you know, I have some insurance in, in my life. Mm, I see the chat. The chat is going. Shu says, I found the arc of talks and practice discussion very enjoyable and helpful. Hearing the different perspectives helps show how taking refuge is the practice. Thank you. And what do you do if you don't know what taking refuge is? If refuge isn't going for protection, for example, as I'm uh, uh, alluding to right now, then what, what, why would we go for refuge? What does it mean to go for refuge? We, um, you know, went through in our class, we went through Buddha. What does it mean to take refuge in Buddha, in Dharma, in Sangha? What are the meanings of Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha? And then all the way the arc through the end of the practice period, uh, the last talk we had by Kokyo went through Dogen's, Dogen Zenji's ways of looking at Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha through three different lenses. Uh, Bruce, I see you have a blue hand. <laughs> Just virtually speaking. Uh, yeah, I, I, I have to say this, this notion of refuge as, as paradoxical has been with me for a while. You know, this is the question of what does it mean? How can you take refuge when everything is impermanent? 
when everything lacks its own discrete separate self like what does what does refuge even mean in that sense mm -hmm. and i think that one thing that's become somewhat clearer for me in these past weeks is that is the concept of permanence with regard to refuge and and what i mean is like refuge isn't some place you go to and you barricade yourself into and make a compound and everything's groovy, safe and cool forever and ever. Um, but it may be that it's permanently available, that you can come back to it. And for some reason, just a few minutes ago, this image popped into my head of when, when a very young child is just beginning to go off on its own and man, by go off, I mean like a few feet away, like, like clinging to the, the parent caregiver, but then going off a few feet, looking back, is, she, is, is that person still there? And then coming back and then looking at that, that risky, safe, but very appealing and irresistible world out there. And so maybe, maybe it's more that sense that when we need to, we can come back to it and, and get whatever we need to get, like reassurance or rest, um, support, like self-care, and then go forth. And I know it's not that simplistic, obviously, but I like the idea of permanently available because that seems a lot more realistic to me than just like, I'm going to live in refuge and good luck, everybody else. Because there's something, there's some respect in which we need that, but we can't stay there, yeah. but we can go back and forth because so much of this practice, it seems is about returning. Right. Yes. So, yes. So that's kind of what's come, been coming up for me. Thank you. Thank you, Bruce. Yes, there is a uh, a line that Paul had in one of his talks where he he talked about um, the experience of either rolling with it, right? rolling with it, whatever it is, right? The causes and conditions of our life. Uh, you know, the the distinction between rolling with it, rolling with whatever comes, and getting rolled over by it. <laughs> and when he said that, I was like, yes, <laughs> yes, right that speaks truth to our experience. I think everyone can say that. There are some times when we feel like we're surfing the wave and other times when we are being crushed, crushed and mangled by the wave. And true refuge, I think, can only, um, you know, stepping back after, after this whole arc of this practice period, what is true, what is false, right? True refuge has to be all inclusive. I think this was part of Kokyo's last talk when talking about uh, um, all of reality has to be part of what, you know, taking refuge in the now is what he was focusing on. Taking refuge in the now, the now being something that is all inclusive. It includes past, it includes the future all of it without exception. And we keep saying this, you know, we keep, well, maybe I, I keep saying this, <laughs> but like, you know, this question of what do we allow into our hearts even? How do we, uh, as soon as the mind arises, the discriminating mind arises and wants to start 
you know, putting things into this category of good and this category of bad, right? As soon as we start to do that, which I have to say, we have to do that. <laughs> so it's not like we don't, you know, that we should stop doing that completely, right? We can't. We're human beings. We live in a world that is uh, the way it is. And so discriminating, you know, wholesome from unwholesome, pleasant from unpleasant, uh, things that are going to lead me to the path of uh, awakening to my true nature versus things that are, you know, these little eddies in the stream that we might get, you know, whipped around in for a while, right? These things that we call false refuge. How do we take a step back and, uh, and welcome all of it, the all-inclusiveness of our practice? Which doesn't mean that we don't make discriminations. You know, when I do X, Y, or Z, I end up feeling uh, depleted, un unavailable, and like I want to just crawl into a hole and die, right? <laughs> that could be one path, right? But awakening to that reality is essential. Awakening to whatever it is that's presenting itself which when we stop and sit, what are we doing when we're stopping and sitting? This stopping is, is, uh, is actually the root of um, our precepts, the, the 10 grave precepts. When we chant them in our full moon Bodhisattva precept ceremony, uh, which we do monthly, we just had one uh, earlier this week, but when we chant the grave precepts, uh, here at Austin Zen Center, thanks to um, Kosho, I believe, who started this practice of illuminating not just the negative of the grave precepts, but also the positive. So I vow not to kill, but to cherish all life. Right? Illuminating both sides. However, I think that there's something about the, uh, the prohibitory nature of precepts that points to um, a very important practice of just stopping, the practice of refraining, right? Which in some sense, when we sit zazen, what are we doing? It is a practice of stopping, right? We're stopping our little, the tendrils of our, uh, our grasping, right? Not to say that that doesn't, the tendrils of grasping don't come up in zazen, right? But we're stopping, uh, the watering of those seeds. I wanted to read a, uh, a quote from a fascicle by Dogen Zenji. This is, uh, uh, the fascicle is called Guidelines for Studying the Way, Gakudo Yojin Shu. And uh, I think this is a nice description, uh, the nice description of what, what happens in Zazen. He says, just forget yourself for now and practice inwardly. This is one with the thought of enlightenment. We see that the 62 views, well, there's only 62. <laughs> the 62 views are based <clears throat> on self. So when a notion of self arises, sit quietly and contemplate it. Is there a real basis inside or outside your body now? Your body with hair and skin is just inherited from your father and mother. 
from beginning to end, a drop of blood or lymph is empty. So none of these are the self. What about mind, thought, awareness, and knowledge, or the breath going in and out, which ties a lifetime together? What is it after all? None of these are the self either. How could you be attached to any of them? And then of course he throws in, deluded people are attached to them. Enlightened people are free of them. So this stopping, you know, this idea of stopping our, uh, I guess sometimes we talk, we talk about it in terms of the dichotomy of doing, you know, the difference between being and doing. And so when we stop, it's like we're stopping the doing uh, or, or uh, the stopping of thinking or relying on thinking to get ourselves into a safe place. I don't know about all of you, but I am no stranger to uh, heavily relying on my brain to think my way out of my problems. Yes. And it's not that uh, our brains aren't useful for thinking our way out of problems, right? But when we take refuge in our brains for thinking our way out of our problems, what ends up happening? I mean, if it's a discrete problem and we think our way out of it, it's like, okay, yay, yay for the brain. <laughs> but in terms of the larger questions, right? The deeper questions that, um, um, that throw light on what is the most important thing in this lifetime or what is the most important thing in this moment, which is all inclusive. How do we, do we rely on our thinking to get in touch with that? Does anyone know what, what I'm, what I'm talking about with this? So sometimes when we come into a practice like the practice of Zen, it's, it's really counterintuitive or maybe not counterintuitive, but it's counter to what we have been taught. It's counter to what we go for uh, when we try to uh, establish some kind of safety, some feeling of like, okay, I'm in control, <laughs> right? There's this feeling of like wanting to be in control because if we're not in control, that's frightening. And who knows what's going to happen? And maybe uh, things will turn out very badly and I will not be uh, okay fundamentally, right? So I, I myself am no stranger to that. Uh, how do I do more to establish a sense of like, okay, now I'm okay, yay. However, I would also say that this dichotomy that I'm bringing up of thinking and doing, um, sorry, not thinking, being, the dichotomy of being, allowing, and doing, meaning you're not going to allow, you're going to actually do something. <laughs> because allowing is not an option when you're in gripped by the need to do something. Right? How many of you have had that experience of, it's not okay for me to sit there I need to be doing something. <laughs> yes, Choro. Oh, were you just <laughs> were you raising your hand? 
<laughs> yes. My hand in solidarity, but I, I did want to say something at some point. So maybe Please. I'll say. Um, I, uh, some of you know that um, my beloved stepmother, who's 93, is declining um, for various reasons. And my sister is her full-time caretaker in Pennsylvania at home while she's also trying to teach online. And it's a very challenging uh, situation. Um, and this week there was a crisis, a health crisis that was pretty um, upsetting uh, for my sister and also for me. And I took refuge with Ren Shin Bunce. I contacted her and said, Ren, <laughs> uh, could I talk to you? She, uh, for those of you who may have missed her talk, she is a transmitted priest in our lineage and also a hospice uh, worker for years and a wise person. And she said, oh, she said, your problem is you're powerless. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, right, that's it. I can't help. There's nothing I can do. I'm, you know, even if I were still living in North Carolina, I would not be, and, and you know, much closer uh, to Pennsylvania. I wouldn't be able to go because of COVID um, and help and uh, I just had, I have to somehow make a refuge out of helplessness, powerlessness. Mm -hmm. um, and I, like Mako, perhaps, and many of you are a, uh, a person who's been praised for my ability to strategize and solve problems. And that is not what is needed. My sister doesn't need that right now, even. She doesn't want it. So I had to really confront, you know, that. Uh, what I normally think is helping or what I would want to do in lieu of being present with all of this and helping physically, it can't happen. And uh, that's been my Rohatsu Sashin, <laughs> a large part of it. So, yeah. yeah, impermanence and powerlessness somehow are refuge. Yeah. Yes, this paradox. We think that being in control will uh, will be a source of refuge. And when it works, it is. <laughs> so it's very easy to think that, right? It's like, oh, yes, I'm in control and it's working. Everything's working out the way I want it to. <laughs> Yay. Ah. <laughs> uh, and yet, still dependent completely on causes and conditions that are beyond our control. Indeed, our whole life is beyond our control. Not to say that we don't, you know, we don't have some uh, seeming control of all kinds of things. In particular, um, we have some. Uh, maybe not control, but influence on what we do with this mind and this body. Right? This paradox, though, of um, of our practice, we see it even in um, Genjo Koan, right? Which is uh, this actual actualizing the fundamental point, which is that what that our practice and realization are not separate. 
interestingly, today for the first time, I thought of this as similar to the just the dichotomy between um, doing, i.e., practicing, and realization, i.e., being. We talk also of something called effortless effort, right? Great striving, this plunging into our vow requires wholeheartedness. It requires everything we've got, quite frankly, right? And to what end, right? It's this, this feeling, this, I mean, practice is filled with these kinds of uh, interesting dichotomies, right? Like the, you know, I think our fundamentally, our life is filled with this tension between um, this kind of mix between tension and relaxation, right? The inhale and the exhale, the wings of the bird, right? The, the right side and the left side. I think Brené Brown talks about this, these wings of the bird that, you know, you need both, right? So anything that we think that we want to extricate ourselves from and like package up and throw away, what does that mean? What does it mean to throw something away? And if we don't throw it away, whatever it is, those nasty habits that we have that we want to change, the, the things that, you know, our reactivity that we feel like, oh, when I'm reactive in this way, I'm not being my true self, right? When we decide to wrap it all up in a nice little package and toss it in the trash, I think that's doing a huge disservice. Not to say that we're not going to try to do that, because that's exactly what we're going to try to do. And yet, you know, these things are sticky, right? They, they stick to us um, in, uh, you know, even people, people whom we think are of as, um, you know, our enemies maybe, or, or people who we just don't, like unsavory influences in our lives. Um, how many of you have practiced with, uh, uh, with somebody, not, not maybe not in Zen practice, but just even your work life or your home life or your social life. How many of you have had the experience of somebody who really triggers you, gets you upset and riled up, right? That you just wish would just go away. <laughs> just please go away. And maybe we even take ourselves away, right? And sometimes that's, you know, that's what we end up doing because um, we don't see any other options. And then sometimes, and I would say this is one of the benefits or one of the, uh, the beauties of taking refuge in Sangha is that when we take refuge in Sangha, one really deep practice of taking refuge in Sangha is to um, is allow space for everyone, even those people who we really, really wish would go away. And that becomes very challenging, right? It becomes challenging because maybe when we're in close proximity to said person, we find ourselves being in ways that we don't like. <laughs> like now I'm all upset and I'm losing my temper at you and like you're causing it. <laughs> right? This is uh, this happens in practice all the time. My uh, I, I spoke to someone recently about a friend, a dear friend of mine, whom some of you met. She came back in 2014 when we had our uh, mountain seat ceremony. Her name is Judith Randall. She's my Dharma sister and uh, ordained as a priest with me. And she had this practice that she called the practice of proximity. Maybe you, I, she, she came from a Quaker background, 
uh, practiced as a Quaker for most of her life before coming to Zen. Maybe it came from that, I'm not sure. But her practice of proximity was to deliberately turn towards those people who she, whom she felt most, uh, you know, kind of uh, chafed by. And she would, you know, go to that person and sit down next to them for a meal, which is, I have to say, very easy to do when you live in community. Very hard to do when you don't live in community because, frankly, just sitting down with somebody for a meal is not so easily available to us in our, uh, well, especially right now, given our social distancing. But uh, even when we are not in a pandemic, it's very challenging. It's very hard to, uh, in our in this world that we live in, this non-communal, isolated and individualistic world, um, to just sit down for a meal together, breaking bread with one another. It's very hard to do unless it's just like there are people just like they're just available. You're living with them. There's lunches happening. You have to choose where to sit down. And oh, everyone's there. The people you like, the people you don't like, all of it's right there. And Judith had this practice of sitting down with those people whom she felt uh, chafed by deliberately. Very beautiful practice. And uh, and just sometimes sometimes at Tassa, living at Tassahara together, I would see her <laughs> sitting down with somebody. I'm like, hmm, I wonder if uh, I wonder if that person is somebody who's getting her trouble. <laughs> uh, and it was a beautiful, I mean, just to say that this is the, this is one of the, the ways of taking refuge in Sangha is that we, you know, we learn from one another, right? Without even, without even realizing it, um, you know, seeing each other in our practice um, has a way of sinking in and becoming less scary. Um, one of the ways of talking about sangha in uh, in in terms of this, I, I think of it in terms of taking refuge in sangha, this uh, taking refuge as what Karen was bringing up of like actually turning towards your vulnerabilities, turning towards those things that are um, that normally under normal circumstances in our human life, we're just like, no, we don't want, no, thank you. <laughs> I'm not going to turn towards this. Um, but we have this phrase that we, we say at the beginning of Sashin's, uh, let us be like as intimate as milk and water. More intimate, and Blanche says this, she always said more intimate even than milk and water. So if you imagine mixing milk and water, it's not like mixing oil and water, right? You can shake oil and water up and it looks like it's all, but you know, you give it enough time and you know, eh, polarization happens. This is, you know, kind of what our, what our lives are like politically speaking in the in uh, in our country now, but practice should be like like uh, as intimate as milk and water. When we mix milk and water, what happens? Can you divide them? Can you separate them from one another? Not so easy. Not so easy to do that. And then Blanche says, more intimate even than that. Because after all, we are all living Buddha's life as our own. And that's true of Sangha. Um, so returning to this, uh, this true refuge, the true refuge of um, 
maybe not picking and choosing. Or if we can't help, our, if our minds can't help but pick and choose, not uh, putting energy into that picking and choosing. Right? How do we allow what is without trying to control it? Right? This picking and choosing is stems from a, a um, you know, a desire, maybe even a faith that our picking and choosing is going to make us safe. That that's where safety lies is picking and picking and choosing. However, when we take refuge in what is, um, it include it becomes all inclusive practice. Nothing is hidden. Another good, lovely phrase in Zen that I. Uh, return to again and again, that nothing is hidden. It may feel hidden for a while, but eventually it becomes revealed. Um, uh, Brad, Brad Warner, some of you know Brad, who's come to visit us numerous times over the years. Um, you know, when he talks about this, he says it in this way. <laughs> he says, you actually use all that shit to become truly yourself, your own shit when used wisely, becomes the fertilizer of your enlightenment. <laughs> deep faith. This requires a deep trust. And, uh, and none of us are expected to have that deep trust right off the bat. Right? That's why it takes practice. Uh, and when Dogen Zenji talks about this, practice realization as being not separate, right? Why is it that we practice? What brings us to practice? Do we practice for, um, you know, sometimes we say, well, we practice for the benefit of all beings, right? Including myself, obviously, of course. Like, please don't forget yourself when you, uh, when you practice for the benefit of all beings, right? As, our, as a, um, a fairly inconceivable vow, right? How do you do that? Practicing for the benefit of all beings. Sometimes Dogen Zenji says, don't practice for the benefit of beings. Don't practice for your own benefit. Practice solely for the sake of Buddha Dharma. Or I would say that Kokyo was hinting at this, maybe not hinting, maybe it was a broad hint, but in terms of coming back to the now, this all-inclusive now, that doesn't have to look a particular way for us to put our trust into it. And that's a very big ask. And it starts with, um, it starts with stopping. When we sit down in Zazen, we are relinquishing our doing mind and taking for a moment a pause just pausing, being open to um, whatever happens in our moment after moment of breathing, of finding our correct posture. Correct posture could be, you know, just being finding uh, an uprightness, an awakeness, an aliveness in your body, right? Whether it's sitting, standing, walking, or even lying down when we turn our attention, which is an active process, it's not passive, right? The stopping is, is very active, it's an active stopping. When we turn towards that, 
um, I think I've quoted from Blanche numerous times that I want to say again, I found this in uh, when looking at her, um, one of her Dharma talks in Seeds for a Boundless Life, talking about, uh, she, she refers to Kobanchino Roshi. And um, the quote is, when you realize how rare and precious your life is, and how, com- how it's completely your responsibility, how you live it, how you manifest it. It is such a big responsibility that naturally such a person sits down for a while. Let me say that again. When you realize how rare and precious your life is and how it's completely your responsibility, how you live it, how you manifest it, it's such a big responsibility that naturally such a person sits down for a while. So when we sit in Zazen, sometimes, you know, we sit in Zazen because the bell rings and we just drag our, you know, our sorry sack of bones and flesh out of bed and we just plop ourselves down and just enter into like, okay, I'm sitting now, right? Sometimes we do that. And sometimes we, um, you know, we come at Zazen with uh, this bright eyed, bushy tailed feeling of like, yes, I'm going to, you know, wake up. Is there a distinction which is better? No, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. All inclusiveness. Coming back to, um, you know, how do we notice our tendency to divide, you know, as a, and I, I have to say, when we look clearly at the tendency to divide, something is revealed for whatever it is, even if it's something that we think of as being unwholesome, when we can pause and look at it, what is this impulse? It doesn't matter if we categorize something as unwholesome or, or wholesome, when we can stop and and greet it and welcome it and say, what is this? Something is learned. Something that is learned that cannot be learned in any other way. So I, I guess um, you know, Dogen, Dogen did uh, write a fascicle, fascicle, I think it's called Henzon, called all-inclusive practice. And, and maybe uh, what I'm saying is heretical. I, I don't think so, but um, coming back to this, what does it mean for something for all inclusiveness to be part of our, uh, our practice and for our practice of all inclusiveness to enter into every aspect of our lives? I think, I think that is all I, most of what I wanted to say this morning. We are, as I mentioned, in this um, in this modified rohatsu sashin still. So after this talk, when we end, um, we're going to go into um, kinhin. For those of you who want to join on the tail end of our rohatsu, the end of the talk, we'll go into uh, you know a little bit of kinhin, and then we'll do another period of sitting. Um, and we'll end uh, end that sitting at um, 
at noon. And I realize we don't have a dawn for that. So um, <laughs> this is what happens when you when you change plans uh, suddenly. Um, so I'm I'm happy to be the dawn for that uh, that remaining last sit of our our day before we break for lunch and return for Paul Haller's final Dharma talk, the seventh uh, in the series um, at 1.30. But perhaps before we end, I would um, just ask if there are any other comments or questions that um, anyone here would like to bring up. Eric, yes. Um, I, I just had a question about when you, you know, you talked about all the all encompassing now that Kokyo talked about, um, I was wondering, I mean, um, is, is he referring to like being time or Dharma position that they, they, they talk to and talk about in Genzo Khan and Uji? Is that what he's pointing to? What do you think, Eric? Uh, I think so, but I'm not sure. And also, uh, Eckhart Tolle, uh, yeah. The Power of Now is, is I, I mean, it's been a long time since I read that, but me too. Does, does that pertain to the same now that he's talking about? I think so. Okay. I do. I do think it's the, um, it's, it is the all inclusiveness, which can't, um, I think can't, um, can't rely on our judgment, our judging mind. And this is, um, this is very hard practice to set aside our judging mind. In, in a sense, that's what we do when we sit, you know, in our zendos, right? Again, we create a safe space. It can be anywhere, you know. The sanctuary can be a blade of grass. But we create a space that we can enter into deliberately. We ask this question, what is this? Not what was that? <laughs> yeah, I think that's a really big point, right? Rather than asking what was that, <laughs> to turn to what is this? Because what is this includes what is that? Or what was that? Does that require faith? Does it require trust? Not really. It actually just requires a little bit of curiosity, which I think all of us are naturally endowed with as human beings. Even if, even if our curiosity seems really lacking and we actually are not interested in curiosity at this moment, it's like, no, thank you. I'm not interested in being curious. I just want this thing to end or I want it to be a particular way, right? Even when we're in that place where, uh, well, where we're gripped, you know, where we're completely gripped and overwhelmed. Even from that space, there can be a sliver of curiosity that we can invite into our heart and mind. Because it's one of those things where even if you increase the amount of curiosity in your being, 
by, you know, half a percent, that can be enough. All right. I wonder if there's any last thoughts before we chant. Mary. Yeah. One of the things I've been thinking a lot about is in addition to curiosity, there has to be this willingness to yeah. let go of that control agenda and to let, you know, to just let go of that to be more in the flow. So this kind of willing openness to curiosity. And one of the, I think the things that I find is that for me, the thing that I'm struggling with out there is it's not the other person. It's my way of relating to the other person and my history of people that that person reminds me of or, mm. or the fear or the struggle around the issue that they like in the political realm that they represent. And so then that's really about that turning that light inward is about really reflecting on how much of the struggle is self-generated. Yes, and, and about like not being okay with what's inside, right? There's a famous Carl Rogers quote about this, I think. I'm not sure, I, I, it's in the back of my mind. Maybe, maybe you know of this, of like basically this going, leading back to this idea of like that which we don't like in other people, right? It's something inside of us that we don't like. <laughs> we don't like the way that we feel that this person is making me feel. Right. And so we, we, it's very easy to just then turn it to, well, you're the problem, <laughs> not right. the way the feeling is the problem. It's a, it's a projection outside as opposed to a reflection on inside. But there's sort of like, if you're not willing to have it, meaning you're not willing to have this thing that you're struggling with, mm. you will have it. <laughs> <laughs> there's this expression. If you're not willing to have it, you will, whatever it is you're struggling with. Right. Yeah. So there's a, there's an, in addition to curiosity, there's to be this willingness to have whatever it is. Be mutually included. Be included. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and they're mutually, um, mutually supporting, right? Yeah. The curiosity, just opening the curiosity a little bit, yeah. opens up the door to willingness. Yeah. Right? And if there's a little bit of willingness, then the curiosity just comes in naturally. Right. Now, what happens when there's no willingness and no curiosity that seem to be available? Go sit down. <laughs> yeah. right. The immensity of it, it may just be like, okay, how do I, I mean, actually what, what we end up doing and what I think um, where we get caught is in putting our trust, right? Or our faith in, the trying to figure it out mind, mm -hmm. right? Into that, the particular kind of doing, right? Because I think the practice realization being doing dichotomy, you know, the realizing part is the being part, but the practicing part requires effort. But when we, when we look at that effort, we also think of it as, um, it's not the same kind of effort of the doing mind that is the, the problem solver, the figure outer, figure outer mind, right? 
I have one more thing I just wanted to, to add, which was that I, I figured this out with in relationship to two of my siblings, how, I, I, how to be with somebody versus trying to be in the problem solving mode. Both had substance abuse issues and I wasn't very helpful to my, my sister because I was trying to help her and fix things, you know? But I, my, I wasn't able to help my brother with his substance abuse issue, but I was able to be in any way that I felt like it was coming for me. But I was able to be with him. Yeah. And, and to let go of that that was my role. And I think he, I think we, we, we could, we could, uh, there was a way in which there was a flow and a love that didn't feel strained that emerged out of that. Mm -hmm. And perhaps we had moments of intimacy that we would never have had if I had been in that other mode. And it taught me so much back to back to see the difference between trying to be with rather than in this fix, do, <laughs> problem solve mode. So I just wanted to share that, that uh, I wish I'd known that so much sooner. Yeah. Yeah. And, and when it is revealed, it's, it's, it seems almost obvious once it's revealed, but prior yeah. to that, it's so, it's so elusive. And, yeah. um, and one thing I just want to say, speaking just what you reminded me of, you know, in Zen there, it's not like you can like Google Zen and compassion and find areas where compassion is specifically named in a lot of Zen texts, right? The, the compassion part in Zen is inextricably tied to the wisdom part, right? The act of sitting down in zazen, allowing everything to be as it is, is ultimately the, the most compassionate act that we can do. Being with your brother without trying to fix or solve I mean, of course, trying to fix and solve, those are coming from places that are, you know, of deep care. It's not that that's wrong. It's just not as effective, <laughs> you know, especially if the, if the just being with hasn't happened already, right? When we come in with this like, oh, I've got ideas. <laughs> Most people, when they're struggling, that's the last thing they want is you to come in with your ideas, no matter how good they are. They're just like, ah, no, I just want to be seen. I want to be heard or I want to be um, allowed to be just as I am. And that is the deepest gift we can give to uh, each other and actually to ourselves is to be with what is um, all inclusively when we sit down. I see Tracy with the blue hand. Tracy. Oh, hello, Mako. Yes, can you hear me okay? You can? Okay. Hey, I just want to thank you so much for your consistent love of that teaching you're offering us now of that question that works so well and of what is this. And I so want to return someday to hear more from you about that as a statement. Mm -hmm. 
so that that offering of um it's just like what you were saying about Dogen that to hear something for it takes a while of hearing something like uh practice realization are not separate for that to become well real <laughs> or at least more known <laughs> uh so thank you mako for your teaching thank you so much and and i and yes i think this um the reason i come back to this is that it is um I don't even know actually what I want to say about that. Maybe I don't want to say anything about the reason. I don't know. I don't know what the reason is. Because <laughs> it speaks to be to me as truth. Mm. And and yeah. a truth that is um is very easy to to uh to forget, especially when we mm. go to our tight, narrow, constricted place, right? That's when we forget <laughs> the teaching the most. <laughs> And yet it's, it is a, uh, that question, well, and inquiry in general, for me, are extraordinarily powerful keys as in openings. Uh, and so you spoke of that constricted place. Wow. Just even remember just sometimes that question, among other ways of phrasing that. Uh, is uh, it it's it it starts it's a key it's one of the keys it starts to open that it starts to open things up thank you thank you Casey <laughs> I see Bruce's hand raised so I think our last uh, our last question or comment uh, it's just a comment I I when you were talking Mako with Mary just now about being with um, that reminded me of something that did come up in either the class or the practice period discussions, they, they, they're totally like merged for me. Yeah. But, you know, we talk so much about taking refuge, taking refuge, seeking refuge. But one of the questions that was asked for us to consider going into one of these sessions was, what does it mean to be refuge for someone? And, and, and I just wanted to say, oh yeah, that reminded me of this thing that, that we talked about um, during the practice period. And that was, it's something that I think doesn't come up often enough. You know, there's, there's so much of, there's so much emphasis on why I come here, why I come here to this practice, to this place. What do I, you know, what am I getting out of it? And it's helpful whenever we can turn that around, I think, you know, it's like, what can I, what can I be? Not, not what can I do for you? What, you know, how can I be refuge for you? Thank you. And maybe with that, I'm going to end with a, um, uh, a bit of a verse. Which was, you know, I had on my, you know, my copious notes that are all over the, scattered all over the place um, that I didn't get to, but I'll end with this. This is a verse from Shantideva. May I be a protector for those without one, a guide for all travelers on the way. May I be a bridge a boat and a ship for all those who wish to cross the water. May I be an island for those who seek one and a lamp for those desiring light. May I be a bed for all who wish to rest and a servant for all who need a servant. It is a beautiful way to live. 
and the uh, the self, the selfing and the self-concern that grip us and will continue to grip us. <laughs> There's no escaping. This is what our minds do. These are this is the number one secretion of our brain is self, right? It's selfing. So, you know, how do we uh, not, uh, you know, uh, demonize selfing? But when we are gripped in the act of selfing, which causes so much suffering for ourselves and others, you know, what is the appropriate response to that suffering? It's always compassion, which can only happen when we, uh, we can include it as opposed to pushing it away. Well, thank you everyone for your, your presence and your insights and for your practice. Have a wonderful rest of your weekend.